You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. It's funny how that only seems to apply to bad things. Without getting into current politics, which you're safe from here, we can't ignore the plight of children seized from parents of a particular group. It's not the first time this has happened. The American government took tens of thousands of children from Native families and placed them in boarding schools with strict assimilation practices. Their philosophy? Kill the Indian to save the man. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. That was the mindset under which the U.S. government moved Native children to boarding schools beginning in the late 19th century. In a time when our government was still fighting Indian Wars. There had been day schools and boarding schools on reservations prior to 1870 when U.S. Cavalry Captain Richard Henry Pratt established the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. This school was not on a reservation, so as to further remove indigenous influence. The Carlisle School and other boarding schools were part of a long history of attempts to either kill, remove, or assimilate Native Americans. As white populations grew in the United States and people settled farther west toward the Mississippi in the late 1800s, there was increasing pressure on the recently removed groups to give up some of their new land, says the Minnesota Historical Society. Since there was no more western territory to push them towards, the U.S. decided to remove Native Americans by assimilating them. In 1885, Commissioner of Indian Affairs Hiram Price explained the logic. It's cheaper to give them education than to fight them. Off-reservation schools began their assault on Native cultural identity as soon as the students arrived, by first doing away with all outward signs of tribal life that the children had brought with them. The long braids worn by boys were cut off. Native clothes were replaced with school uniforms. The children were given new anglicized names, including new surnames. Traditional native foods were abandoned, as were things like sharing from communal dishes, forcing students to use the table manners of white society, complete with silverware, napkins, and tablecloths. The strictest prohibition of all arguably fell on their native languages. Students were forbidden from speaking their tribal language, even to each other. Some schools rewarded children who spoke only English, but most schools chose the stick over the carrot and relied on punishment to achieve the same. This is especially cruel when you consider that many of the words the children were being forced to learn and use had no equivalent in their mother tongue. The Indian schools taught history with a definite white bias. 
Columbus Day was heralded as a banner day in history and a beneficial event for Native people, as it was only after discovery that Native Americans became part of history. Thanksgiving was a holiday to celebrate good Indians having aided the brave Pilgrim Fathers. On Memorial Day, some students at off-reservation schools were made to decorate the graves of soldiers sent to kill their fathers. Half of each school day was spent on industrial training. Girls learned to cook, clean, sew, care for poultry, and do laundry for the entire institution. Boys learned industrial skills such as blacksmithing, shoemaking, or performed manual labor such as farming. Not receiving much funding from the government, the schools were required to be as self-sufficient as possible, so students did the majority of the work. By 1900, school curriculums tilted even further toward industrial training, while academics were neglected. The Carlisle School developed a placing-out system, which put Native students in the mainstream community for a summer or a year at a time, with the official goal of exposing them to more job skills. A number of these programs were outright exploited. At the Phoenix Indian School, the girls became a major source of domestic labor for white families in the area, while boys were placed in seasonal harvest or other jobs that no one else wanted. Conversion to Christianity was also deemed essential to the cause. Curriculums included heavy emphasis on religious instruction, such as the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, and the Psalms. Sunday school meant lectures on sin and guilt. Christianity dictated gender relations at the schools, and most schools invested energy in keeping the sexes apart, in some cases locking the dormitories at night. Discipline within the Indian schools was severe and generally consisted of confinement, corporal punishment, or restriction of food. In addition to coping with the severe discipline, students were ravaged by diseases exacerbated by crowded conditions. Tuberculosis, influenza, and an eye condition called trachoma were the greatest threats. In December 1899, measles broke out at the Phoenix Indian School, reaching epidemic proportions by January. In its wake, 325 cases of measles, 60 cases of pneumonia, and 9 deaths were recorded in a 10-day period. During the Carlisle School's operation, from 1879 to 1918, nearly 200 children died and were buried near the school. Native people resisted the schools in as many ways as possible. Sometimes entire villages refused to enroll their children in white schools. Native parents banded together to withdraw their children en masse, encouraged runaways, and undermined the school's influence during summer break. In some cases, police were sent out to the reservation to seize children from their parents. The police would continue to take children until the school was filled, so sometimes orphans were offered up, or families would negotiate a family quota. Navajo police officers would take children assumed to be less intelligent, those who were not well cared for, or those who were physically impaired. This was their attempt to protect the long-term survival of their tribe by keeping healthy, intelligent children at home. It was not until 1978, within the lifetime of many of my gentle listeners, 
that the passing of the Indian Child Welfare Act gave Native parents the legal right to deny their children's placement in off-reservation schools. Though the schools left a devastating legacy, they failed to eradicate Native American cultures as they'd hoped. Later, the Navajo Code Talkers, who helped the U.S. win World War II, would reflect on the strange irony that forced assimilation had played in their lives. As adults, the Code Talkers found it puzzling that the same government that had tried to take away their language in schools later gave them a critical role speaking their language in military service, recounts the National Museum of the American Indian. There are a number of off-reservation boarding schools in operation today. Life in the schools is still quite strict, but now includes teaching native culture and language rather than erasing it. Though they cannot be separated from their legacy of oppression and cultural violence, for many modern children, they're a step to a better life. Poverty is endemic in many reservations, which also see much higher than average rates of alcoholism, drug use, and suicide. For the students, these schools are a chance to escape. In addition to documentaries, I'd like to recommend the movie The Education of Little Tree, about a part Cherokee boy who goes to live with his grandparents in the mountains of Tennessee, but is then sent to an Indian school. It's a very sweet movie, but have some tissues ready for the end. The Australian government of the early 20th century had similar goals when it came to the Aborigines, and particularly to children who were mixed Aborigine and white. Between 1910 and 1970, between 10 and 30% of indigenous children were forcibly removed from their families as a result of various government policies. A 1994 survey by the Australian Bureau of Statistics stated that one in every 10 Aboriginal people aged over 25 had been removed from their families in childhood. The generations of children removed under these policies became known as the Stolen Generations. As with the Indian schools, the forcible removal of indigenous children from their families was part of a policy of assimilation, based on the assumption of white superiority. Children taken from their parents as part of the Stolen Generation were taught to reject their heritage and forced to adopt white culture. Their names were changed and they were forbidden from speaking their traditional languages. Some children were adopted by white families, and many were placed in institutions where abuse and neglect were common. Assimilation policies focused on children because it was believed they were more adaptable than adults. Mixed-race children, then called half-caste, were particularly vulnerable to removal, as authorities thought these children could be assimilated more easily due to their lighter skin color. Mixed-race children were also one step along the government's plan to breed out the color. The idea was to encourage them to marry whites, albeit low-class ones, over the next few generations until no trace of their ethnicity remained. At a conference in 1937, the Chief Protector of Aboriginals in Western Australia, A.O. Neville, asked, are we going to have a population of one million blacks in the Commonwealth, or are we going to merge them into our white community and eventually forget that there were any Aborigines in Australia? This is actually a reversal of the 1918 law, which had made it illegal for a white man to have a child with an Aboriginal woman. 
There was no law against Aboriginal men being with white women because that scenario was unthinkable to them at the time. The Australian government literally kidnapped these children from their parents as a matter of policy. White welfare officers, often supported by police, would descend on Aboriginal camps, round up the children, separate the ones with light skin, bundle them into trucks and take them away. Desperate parents would paint their children daily with crushed charcoal to make them as dark as possible so they would be less appealing to the men looking for mixed-race children, as well as teaching their children to run and hide whenever they saw a white man. Sometimes, to avoid having to deal with the parents, agents would lure children with candy into animal trap-like cages in the back of their van. Where the children were taken depended on how old and how light-skinned they were. Sibling groups were split because authorities believed in what they called the split-the-litter system, which would make the children easier to control. Some started out in Roman Catholic orphanages where they were treated decently, but as they grew older, they were moved on to homes run by churches and missionary societies. There, they were physically, emotionally, and sometimes sexually abused. Some of the stolen children went straight into so-called half-caste homes. Conditions in these homes were deplorable. The half-caste home at Alice Springs, called the Bungalow, consisted of a rough frame of wood with some dilapidated sheets of corrugated iron thrown on top. Aboriginal children who were taken away also fed the insatiable demand for station workers and domestic servants. Without these cheap and often unpaid laborers, white Australians wouldn't have been able to build the wealth and infrastructure that helped them prosper. Authorities also took children away, pretending that the Aboriginal parents would neglect them. There is evidence that the children were malnourished because the Aboriginal people were not being paid the wages they were owed. During the 1960s, the child removal process slowed, but continued into the 1970s. Some of the schools and missions who held the stolen generations didn't close until the early 1980s. The forcible removal of indigenous children from their families had a profound effect that's still felt today. Efforts to make children reject their culture often caused them to feel ashamed of their indigenous heritage. Many children were wrongly told that their parents had died or abandoned them, and many never knew where they had been taken from or who their biological families were. Medical experts have noted a high incidence of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and suicide. Many of the stolen generation children never experienced living in a healthy family and never learned parenting skills. In some cases, this has resulted in multiple generations of children raised in state care. The removal of several generations of children severely disrupted indigenous oral culture and consequently much cultural knowledge has been lost. This is especially sad because Aboriginal oral tradition is considered the most consistent and reliable in the world, with stories being passed down unchanged across as many as 300 generations. I think we could all use a quick breather for something happier, don't you? How about our latest iTunes slash Apple podcast review? This five-star review comes from Fan Theory World. Moxie does a wonderful job with this show, 
Each topic is not only interesting in its own right, but Moxie's clear and concise storytelling style really puts an enjoyable and easy-to-listen-to spin on it. I can't wait to work through the earlier episodes, and I definitely look forward to seeing new ones in the future. Thanks, Fan Theory World. If you've got a second, it really means a lot when you leave a review on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app, or if you're more comfortable with social media, pop over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts, and leave your review there. Not only will it be read on the show, but it will also show up on yourbrainonfacts.com. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. While children of color being taken by white majority governments is most common, it doesn't have the market cornered. When he came to power in 1966, Nicolae Ceausescu had grand plans for Romania. The country hadn't really industrialized until after the Second World War, and its birth rate was low. Ceausescu borrowed from the 1930s Stalinistic dogma that population growth would fuel economic growth, and fused this ideal with the conservatism of his rural childhood. In the first year of his rule, his government issued Decree 770, which outlawed abortion for women under 40 with fewer than four children. The fetus is the property of the entire society, Ceausescu announced. Anyone who avoids having children is a deserter. The birth rate soon doubled, but so did the rate of homemade abortions, often with catastrophic results. In 1977, all childless persons, regardless of sex or marital status, were made to pay an additional monthly tax. In the 1980s, condoms and the birth control pill already prohibitively expensive, became available and were immediately outlawed. Women were examined every three months for signs of pregnancy. This was done at their workplace. 
If they were found to be pregnant and didn't subsequently give birth, they could face prosecution. These policies, coupled with Romania's poverty, meant that more and more children could not be cared for. No one knows exactly how many. The government pledged to raise the children whose parents were too poor or incapable of caring for them. Mothers were pressured into giving up their children. Maternity wards had posters saying things like, the state can care for your child better than you can. Some women never wanted the children they were ordered to conceive in the first place and were happy to turn them over. Disabled children were almost guaranteed to be placed in state care, with doctors describing them to their mothers as garbage. After 1982, when Ceausescu redirected most of the budget to paying off the national debt, the economy tanked and conditions in the orphanages, already poor, suffered. Electricity and heat were often intermittent. There was not enough staff. There was not enough food. Doctors and professionals were denied access to foreign research, and nurses were woefully undertrained. This led to many orphans contracting HIV because hypodermic needles were reused. Developmental delays, autism, and deafness were routinely diagnosed as mental disability. Institutional abuse flourished unchecked. While some caretakers did their best, others stole food from the orphanage kitchens and drugged the children into docility. According to Doctors Without Borders, each orphan received an average of five to six minutes of attention per day. After Ceausescu was deposed in 1989, the world's press discovered Ceausescu's orphanages and the appalling images went out around the world. Disabled children tied to beds, toddlers who couldn't walk, malnourished babies left unattended in metal cribs. The pictures shocked Romanians as much as it did the rest of the world. The institutionalized children had been kept from the view of the general population, including the parents that had placed them there. It's either irony or poetic justice, but much of the power of the revolution that overthrew Ceausescu came from young adults, people who had been born because he had legally required their mothers to continue having children. The Dion family of Ontario, Canada would have doubled the Romanian requirement in one go with the birth of exceptionally rare identical quintuplets in addition to their other five children. The odds of their birth alone are 1 in 13 million, let alone surviving being born two months premature in 1934. The five girls, Yvonne, Annette, Cecile, Amélie, and Marie, weighed together as much as two average babies. Their father reached out to a local newspaper asking if it would be more expensive to run a birth announcement for five babies at once rather than one. Reporters and photographers caught wind and traveled to the Dion's remote farm. The Canadian press distributed the news to outlets across the country. The Associated Press received word of the miracle, and the birth of the quintuplets gained international attention. Since no set of quintuplets was ever known to have lived for very long, and any bit of good news was welcome in the depths of the Great Depression, the sisters made front-page headlines across the globe. People sent donations, supplies, and letters filled with well-wishes and advice. The people in charge of the upcoming Century of Progress World's Fair in Chicago 
reached out to the Dion's, offering their mother a sizable amount of money for permission to put the girls on display. The parents initially agreed, which brought on a backlash of accusations of exploitation and some people just being angry that these Canadian miracles were being taken to the U.S. The parents changed their mind and returned the promoter's check, but the babies were about to leave anyway. The Ontario government intervened, claiming concern over exploitation as well as the parents' ability to provide for ten children and removed the children from the parents' custody but only the four-month-old quintuplets. Their parents contended it was because they were French-speaking, poor, and Catholic, which was not a favored combination in the eyes of the English-speaking Protestant government. The sisters were made wards of the crown, with responsibility for their day-to-day -day care given to the doctor who had delivered them. They were housed in a specially built hospital and nursery, which had several areas designated for public observation. It became known as Quintland. The government, the doctor, and his staff set up an entire tourist attraction solely around the girls. For the next nine years, they were constantly studied and examined. They were presented for public exhibition two to three times a day. Their likenesses were used in advertising for everything from dolls to toothpaste. Quintland generated about $500 million in revenue and brought greater life to the small Canadian village near the city of North Bay, prompting the construction of hotels, restaurants, and souvenir shops. The Dion sisters became the planet's most photographed children. Despite the thousands of visitors that came to gawk at the girls, they had little to no contact with anyone outside the hospital, including their parents and other siblings. In November 1943, the Dion parents won back custody of the sisters. The entire family moved into a newly built house with many amenities of the time like telephone, electricity, and hot water. But it wasn't the Happy Tears daytime TV reunion you're probably hoping for. According to the accounts of the surviving sisters, the parents often treated them at home as a five-part unit and lectured them about the trouble that they caused by existing. The girls were unaware for many years that the lavish house, the expensive food, and the series of cars the family enjoyed were paid for with money that they themselves had earned. There were accusations of abuse, as well as suppressing and ignoring Sister Amelie's epilepsy, which would kill her at the age of 20. The quintuplets left the family home upon turning 18 years old in 1952 and had little contact with their parents afterwards. Admission to Quintland had been free to the public, but the Ontario government put aside the revenue that the girls had generated through advertising and sales of souvenirs into a trust. That money was supposed to be for the girls later in life. Instead, most of it was used to pay the salaries of the nurses who cared for them, the policemen who directed traffic outside, and the general operating expenses of the building and amenities for tourists. In the late 1990s, the sisters re-emerged in the media after launching a campaign for a public inquiry into the mismanaged funds. They ultimately won a settlement of $4 million. In 2017, the two surviving sisters granted a rare interview with the New York Times in an effort to preserve the family home in which they were born. Backed by local residents, 
particularly senior citizens who remember the Dion's as a major story in their lifetime, Annette and Cecile succeeded. The home has since been transported to downtown North Bay with the intention of making it a museum. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Let me leave you with a story on a more upbeat note. In 1997, seven-year-old Wang Xu of China was walking to school when a woman stopped and asked Xu to help her carry some things home. When Xu refused, the woman grabbed her and fled. Zhu would wake up 185 miles or 300 kilometers away from home. She was given to a couple who abused her. But Zhu's mother never gave up hope. Even with limited information, Zhu and her family were reunited through a website called Baby Back Home, which attempts to track down missing children and reunite them with their parents. DNA tests confirmed the results. Hundreds of locals lined the street around the family home, decorating the whole area with flowers and banners. I have finally found my daughter, her teary-eyed mother, Yang Hui, told reporters. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. No gross-sounding word at the end of today's show. It just didn't seem right. That and I'm running out, so if you can think of any, let me know. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.